Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like to start off the first Sunday of the new year a little different in that we'll begin with some updates and then do an exercise that we do about every two years, give or take. And then starting next week, we're kind of be back to normal with um, a short series going through the book of Ruth. But first, some updates. One, um, again, because of your ongoing continual generosity, we were able to meet our year-end giving goals, which enables us to start this year, 2024, right, yeah. Yeah, for two reasons, clap because we made our year-end giving goal, but two, it's the year 2000, you made it. It's 2024. You're now living in the future, congratulations. Um, And the reason why that is so important is because of, uh, number two, is that as I mentioned in December, this church uh, has seen a 20% increase in attendance uh, in the last 12 months. And so in like one year, we've grown by 20%. And that is true of church-wide attendance. And in case you don't know what I mean by that is we have the Gilroy campus, we have a Hollister campus, and we have a Spanish-speaking campus, Iglesia Central. So that's 20% is true, not only of kind of church-wide, but also at the individual campus level. And because of that, we're seeing tons of new faces. Um, And in light of that, we want to, um, A, celebrate that growth, but also know and understand that the scriptures say where much is given, much is required. And so we feel the weight of that. Like really, we feel the weight of that and we all share that weight. There's new people coming. We had a record amount of baptisms last year. There's new believers, people just kind of seeking and checking things out. There's people growing in their kind of long, lifelong walk with God and there's a weight to that. God is entrusting us, all of us, with more and more responsibility. And so because of that, um, starting very soon, you're going to hear more about that, but we'll be starting a, a third service at the Gilray campus, a late afternoon service at 4.30 p.m. Um, in the coming weeks, you'll learn about serving opportunities and the exact details of that. But the reason why I bring it up right now is I want us to begin kind of feeling the weight of what's happening here. Because in order for us to keep up with this stuff, it's not just like we do another service, but we need more volunteers, like at every level, greeting, ushering children, worship team. So we're going to need an increase in you all serving in your gifts. Now, I say that because we all suffer uh, just by sort of default. It's like the water we swim in and the air we breathe by being in the Silicon Valley, kind of the Bay Area, California, with busyness. You know what I mean? Um, like the instant reaction to anything is, oh, I'm so busy. Now, here's the truth, okay? Here's the truth. Many of you are super busy. Many of you are too busy and you need to cut some things out. But many of us think we're far busier than we actually are. And I know this because I know the stats on entertainment consumption, how much movies we're watching, how many TVs we're watching. We invented terms like binge watching and it refers to seasons of TV shows. The amount of time on internet, scrolling through social media. So um, there's some of us who are truly, genuinely busy. You're serving, you're doing all kinds of things. Some of you, you think you're busy and it's just left over as kind of maybe from a time when you were busy uh, and just culturally we feel rushed, go, 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 busy, busy. And then the other component of it, which is really important, you just have to evaluate, Sometimes we're busy, but we're busy with stuff that isn't that important. Like we, we pack our schedule with things that ultimate, with stuff that ultimately doesn't matter in the big picture of things. And so I say all of this um, because we're going to need a lot more people to, to be serving to keep up with this 
um, growth of people. And so just evaluate that. It's not a guilt trip or anything like you're not as busy as you think. Some of you are, but some of you probably need to evaluate. Like, how can I serve? It is an honor and privilege to serve Jesus and his people. It's an honor and privilege to serve his people. And so you'll be hearing more about serving opportunities in the future, but now I just want to put that on your radar. And then also keep in mind that there are so many new faces. Walk up to people, say hello. If you, we've had 20% growth in the last 12 months, but you have to understand that on average, every church loses 10% of its people every year. And that's due to A, deaths, and B, um, people moving out of the area, and then see that someone just doesn't like, you know, the guy with the long hair said a joke, first service, didn't like, I'm never coming back. Um, And so if you remove 10% and then you take the the fact that being in California, we've seen a a great amount of people move out of the area. We've had a lot of people move out of there, a lot of new people come in. And so in one sense, there's this fresh feeling where there's so many new faces. So we want to feel the weight of that. We all collectively share the responsibility of ministering to each other, speaking God's truth over each other, discipling each other. So carry that... um, Feel, feel the weight of that and ask, and ask yourself and pray before the Lord, how can, I, how can I possibly help out? Okay, now on to what's on the screen. Every couple years, we do this exercise where we walk through what we mean when we say gospel-centered and mission-focused. Because if you've noticed, that phrase is like on everything. It's on your handout when you walk in. It's on our webpage. If you get like... Um, at a membership class, you're going to talk about that stuff. We say it again and again and again, but every so often it's important to go, okay, what, what exactly do we mean? What precisely do we mean when we say we are gospel-centered and mission-focused? Because oftentimes, especially in the church world, words can get used in such generic ways. They become so flexible that they could refer to almost anything that is true, but it's not what the word actually means. For example, someone might say, um, What is the gospel? The gospel is that God has a plan for your life. Now, I believe that God has a plan for your life, but that's not the gospel. So you can have a true statement that's true, but it's not actually what that word is. And so sometimes there's words like righteousness or sanctification, and you can just use them, but you're using them in some general sense and not being precise with the language. What I want to say today is that however you think of the word gospel, it's probably not big enough. When we use the word gospel, it's something that I believe affects every layer of reality, every fabric of reality, every component of your life from the big things to the small things. Like it's working at that level. So however big I can speak of the gospel today, it's not big enough. However big I think it is, however big you think it is, the gospel is much bigger than that. And I also believe, like I said, it don't only apply to the stuff up here, the big stuff. But the gospel is important for the small stuff in your everyday lives. So, to the question, what is the gospel? C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, the sun is not just an object that you could observe. The sun is an object that you can observe, but you can also See the world because of it. You follow this. It's very important. It's not just something to look at. It's the, the thing that lets you see all of reality. So think of a pair of sunglasses. 
If you have a pair of sunglasses, you can obviously take them off and look at them. You can observe the object, but the sunglasses are also meant to be put on. And once you put the sunglasses on, whatever tint they have, you will then see the world through the lens of that tint. And everything is colored because of the the, the tint of the sunglasses. So it's an object that you can take off and look at, but it's also an item by which you see the world. Likewise, the gospel is something that we can look at, but it's more than that. It's the thing that we ought to see all of reality through. So every single person you know, you encounter, your friends, your coworkers, your family, the stranger on the street, the person who cut in front of you at the grocery store, because they keep two lines open and there's 100 people here. You ought to see all of those individuals through the lens of the gospel. Now, one of the mistakes that we make when we think about the gospel is we can think about it like it's the ABCs of the faith. And what I mean by that is the gospel is, it's, it's like the, the first thing you learn before you go to real school. At preschool, you, you get these little blocks with the, the alphabet on them and you learn your ABCs, you learn the song, but eventually you have to mature past preschool and singing the ABCs and go into the deeper stuff. And so we, likewise, as Christians, we can conceive of the gospel as the thing that you first learn to become a Christian. It's like the ABCs, it's preschool. Now that I'm a Christian, though, I want to move on and talk about like deeper theological things. I want to grow in my faith. I want to study deep things, meaty things. Or you might picture the gospel as the front door to a house. I wasn't a Christian, And the gospel is the front door. I believe in the gospel, and then I go through the front door, but then I'm not supposed to stick at the front door. I'm supposed to go on and study the rest of the house. But that is a flawed way of understanding the gospel. The gospel is the ABCs, not in the sense that it's the song you learn and then you move past. The gospel is the ABCs in the sense that it is the language by which you will compose every sentence, every phrase, and every word for the rest of your life. The gospel is the language by which words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, and pages will be composed by henceforth. And likewise, the gospel is not just the front door to the house. It certainly is the front door to the house, but it's the entire structure itself. So the Christian is to live and breathe and eat and sleep in the house, in the gospel. There's a remarkable passage in the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. This is one of the first Christians and leaders in the early church by the name of Paul the Apostle writing to Christians in Rome. He says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. Now here's the key. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So who's Paul writing to? The church in Rome, and what is the church of Rome filled with? Christians. Nevertheless, he says, I am eager to come to you, Christians, so that I can preach what to you? The gospel. Which means the gospel was not just needed for like unbelievers or people who didn't know God, but the actual Christians in that church needed the gospel to such a degree that Paul's saying, I am eager to come to you so that I can preach the gospel to you. So unbelievers need it and believers need it. And they need it all of the time. 
Which then gets us to the ultimate question, which you're kind of saying, well, like, are we finally going to answer the question that you began with? What is the gospel? Okay, here's the big problem. The Bible never gives you a definition of the gospel. It doesn't have that thing like in elementary school where your textbooks, you know, you'd go to the back and it'd have the dictionary of all your key terms. By the way, if, if there's any people in elementary school in attendance, um, that is like the key to getting the answers right on the test. You just memorize that dictionary. Bio- Photosynthesis, don't know what that is. Go to the back. There's a one-sentence definition. You're good. Now, in one sense, you would wish that like maybe at the end of the Bible, God did that. Like there's the inspired diction- terms um, explanation at the end of the What's righteousness? What's sanctification? But it doesn't do that. And so what we have to do with the word gospel is we have to begin to to look at the big picture, all that's presented in scripture, and take all the individual puzzle pieces together to then form the composite image that gives us the big picture. So what I like to do is sort of look at that, cut a few pieces of the puzzle and put them together and see what begins to emerge. So first off, what is the gospel? The first thing you ought to probably ask is what does that word actually mean? So the word gospel is used by Christians in the New Testament, and the New Testament is written in Greek. And the Greek word for gospel is euangelion, and it literally means something. Euangelion, the word that gets translated as gospel, literally means it's just good news. Good news. It's important, one, that it's good, it's not bad news, and then the second part is really important. It's news, which may not sound like a big deal or like, okay, what, what's important about that? It means that whatever the gospel is, it's news. Therefore, it is something that has happened. Something has occurred in history. And the news of that event is now going out. So picture you're watching TV at night and you're watching the news and an event is reported. You go, oh, dear, can you believe something something happened in whatever place of, of the world? What you are doing is you're hearing a report of something that has occurred. The gospel, whatever it may be by nature, is something that has occurred in history. Which means it's not five steps. It's not three steps. It's not like three steps to happiness. It's not how you can live a better life. It's not any of that. It's by nature, an event has occurred. And the word euangelion is making a claim about what has occurred. Namely, that whatever has occurred in history is good. Something's happened, and it's good. In the first century world that the New Testament was written in, that word, euangelion, would have have resonance in two cultures, the Greco-Roman culture and then the Jewish culture. In the Greco-Roman culture, when the word euangelion, good news, was used, it was primarily used um, in terms of military and victory. So Caesar would go fight some battles, some wars, And when he was victorious, he would send out messengers and heralds and ambassadors declaring in every which direction that there is good news. This is the euangelion of Caesar. Caesar has defeated his enemies and he continues to rule and reign. So it's it's a reporting of the event that good news, Romans, Caesar is again victorious, he's king. In the Jewish world, the resonance is very similar to this, it's just different. In the Jewish world, the good news that the euangelion has resonance not just with an earthly leader defeating his enemies, but it has to deal with the specific idea that the God of Israel, the true king of kings, 
the God of Israel, will be victorious and he will dwell and rule and reign with his people. You see this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. Here's the key. Who says to Zion, your God reigns? It's the hope of ancient Israel that their God and king would rule and reign and that there would be peace. So that's the first sort of piece to the puzzle that euangelion, the word means good news, something has happened. And in both the Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world in the first century, it usually meant a battle has been fought. Someone has come out victorious and here's the news. Okay, the next piece is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I know I just said that the Bible doesn't have a dictionary of of terms at the end, but the closest we get to a dictionary kind of definition of the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not a dictionary definition, but it's the closest we get in the Bible. Here's Paul the Apostle, once again, writing to Christians, not in Rome, but in a city called Corinth. And he says this, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul's saying, this is the thing that is of first importance. I didn't make it up. I received it. And now I'm reminding you of what I originally told you. Namely, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. I've underlined the key parts here. Remember, if, if gospel is you on Galeon, it's the reporting of news that's occurred. These are at least, in 1 Corinthians, the elements of that historical event. This is what the news would need to report. That Christ died, and this is in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised. Now let's go back to our teacher example where, you know, if you need to pass the test, you read the dictionary at the back. If a, if a school teacher wants, you, wants the students to know something is going to be on the test, but they don't want to tell them this is going to be on the test, what might they use to get them to get the hint? One of the things is repetition. It's like, I'm not going to tell you what's on the test, but Christ died according to the scriptures, da 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 Christ died according to the scriptures. Did you notice that when we first read it? That the idea that Christ died according to the scriptures is repeated twice. Nothing else is. Now why is that? The first Christians made it abundantly clear that the story of Jesus is not a brand new story. The story of Jesus is the climax and zenith to a very long story that has been taking place for a very long time. And that's the story that's being told all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. From Genesis to the New Testament, there is this long story, and it's the the first Christian's way of saying, everything reaches its zenith, its climax. This is the intended goal. The, 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 The zenith to this long story is Christ. All the previous Scriptures are pointing here. In other words, you cannot cut Christ off from the Hebrew Scriptures. It all goes together, and this is the emphasis. Christ died according to the Scriptures. Then, the elements... He was killed, he was buried, and he was raised. 
So now think about this. If you have a euangelion, a report of news, now we at least get the actual elements of the historical event that's occurred. Christ lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose. Take that with us. Let's keep going. Then you have this interesting thing that takes place with the first four books of the New Testament. Um, If you are new to Christianity, the the big giant Bible, um, we divide it into two halves, but it's really confusing because like the first half really isn't a half mathematically, it's more like two thirds, but there's two portions to it. And so the Bible split into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Oftentimes I'll call the Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures because they're written in Hebrew. So when the Old Testament ends, the New Testament begins and it begins with four books and they are called gospels. And they are the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John which at first glance may be straightforward, but when you start to think about it, it could be a little bit confusing because you also know that the Bible rightfully emphasizes that there is only one gospel. We have songs that we sing that says, there is only one gospel. And Paul the Apostle in his book, to, book of the Galatians, he says, if anyone preaches a different gospel than me, like, they're anathema. So there's this massive emphasis on there being one gospel, but yet the New Testament begins with four different Gospels. The Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. So what's going on? Those first four books of the New Testament are first century biographies. That's their genre. They're first century biographical accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So very early on in church history, the first Christians saw Matthew's biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as a gospel. And they saw this because what what they were articulating was that there is only one gospel, and that is what occurs in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But we have four different accounts reporting on that same event. And so when Matthew tells his version of that historical event, it's called the gospel according to Matthew the gospel according to Mark and to Luke. And you might even say, and say, although it's not on par with the gospel accounts, that when you're telling a friend about the life of Jesus, you're giving an account of your understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. So the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they just tell you the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, let's put all of those pieces together, and, and something will begin to emerge. Gospel is good news. It's an event that has occurred. Usually it deals with battles that have been fought and won and messengers go out proclaiming this event has occurred and this is what it means for you. The elements of that historical event are found in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, the New Testament begins with gospel retellings, which are biographical accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when you put all of those sort of elements together, something will begin to emerge. And there's a fun exercise that you can do on your own if you'd like to, but you can take all of those pieces and say, okay, let me write a page on what I think the gospel is. Let me write a paragraph of what I think the gospel is. And then what we're going to do today is I'm just going to give you a sentence of what the gospel is. Now, I'm not saying like this is the authoritative articulation of the gospel and there's no other way to do it, but in a sentence, these are the core elements that we get when we put all the pieces together. 
The gospel is the announcement. It's the reporting of the good news. The announcement of the victory of Jesus over Satan's sin and death through his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. And his life, death, and resurrection was actually a war, a war to defeat specifically three enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Now, oftentimes, um, we can focus on the sin component, meaning that Christ died to forgive us of our sins. That's true and incredibly important. But you have to understand the inner logic of the scriptures. Why, why is there sin in the world? Well, or not why is there sin, but why is sin such a problem? Why do we have to deal with sin? Because the wages of sin are death. So sin enters into the equation, and then death enters into the equation. So they're intricately bound up together. Likewise, how did sin and death originally enter into creation? God didn't author sin and death. You have to go back to the beginning of the story, where there's this mysterious serpent figure who's obviously more than a serpent. This is Satan, the enemy of old, the serpent of old, and he basically tells human beings, like, God's holding out on you. You can be like him. And so there's this original temptation and sin and death occurs. So when you understand the biblical logic, you will always understand that Satan's sin and death are like a braid. They're intricately bound up together. And they are your three great enemies. And the gospel is that a battle has been fought and it's been won. Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has defeated Satan's sin and death. And this is the news to be reported, and we want you to know it's really, really good news. It's Evangelion type of news. Okay. So, now, when we begin to reflect on that, we can just begin to say, like, okay, the gospel is um, Christ defeated Satan, sin, and death. And it's really hard to then look at all of reality through that. But you have to learn to do this. You have to learn to look at all of reality through the lens of the gospel. And you have to apply the gospel to yourself every single day. Remember, Paul is eager to go to Christians in Rome so that he could preach the gospel to them. So think of the gospel like a massive boulder being thrown into a lake. And when you picture the lake, picture the lake like it's the most still, beautiful, pristine, perfect lake you've ever seen. You're just going like, I want to skip rocks on this. I'll finally beat three. Um, and then picture like some super strong dude join a th- throwing a giant boulder in the lake. Now, when the boulder hits the lake, there's an initial impact, right? The initial impact is big. But then even after that, what occurs? Concentric circles form and the ripples go throughout all of the lake. And in fact, the entirety of the lake is affected by that initial impact. What occurred 2,000 years ago was a massive event that hit all of creation, all of reality, physical world, spiritual world, and that rock hit, and now the ripple effects have been going out. And when properly seen, the ripples touch every layer and component and fabric of reality. So oftentimes, we can, we can overemphasize a particular component of the gospel, and it's true and good, but we can do that at the neglect of others. So let me give you an example. In kind of church culture today, one of the big emphasis of the gospel is that, look, there's a way for you to go to heaven. Now, the, the kind of simple version of that is like, oh, just believe in the gospel and then you get to go to heaven. Okay, 
It's much, it's much bigger than that. Like the gospel provides a way for you to live in eternity with God, adopted as one of his children. So that's a beautiful thing, and that's true. That's a true part of the gospel. But it's, it's, it has to be more than that. Oftentimes, we just look at it through a hyper-individualistic lens, like, what does the gospel do for me right now? But think about this. If that man, Jesus of Nazareth, who died the slave's death on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, if that man was truly God, and he died on behalf of humanity, what does that mean? What implications are there for every layer of reality? What, if that is true, what does that say about your future? If Christ is truly king, what does it not only say about your future, but the future of all things? What implications are there? What about your past? What about the past in the broader sense? If, what does it say about suffering? Think of it like this. If God really came and he was tortured and died in agony on a cross, might that have something to say about your present suffering? The fact that infinite almighty God suffered as a human as well, might that have something to say about human suffering? And then furthermore, not just your suffering as an individual, but suffering in the big sense as far as human suffering, the problem of evil. Might there be implications? And the answer is, of course, yes. If Christ was truly killed, crucified, and resurrected, would that change how you raise a family? Would that change how you interact with your spouse? Would, that ch- would, would the goals for your family and your marriage change if that man crucified on that cross was God? And the answer is, it has to. It would have to change it. It would change your value system. But again, the ripples go out. You have to go much better. Think about education. Would, would, people, tr- would people develop a different philosophy of education if they truly believed that Christ was king? And the chief end of man is to glorify that king. How would we look at the nations and wars and rulers and kings? Here, I'll give you an example. If Christ is truly king and he's the king of kings, that means any earthly king, any earthly ruler, any earthly person that's been given authority has been given that authority. They are a delegated authority. So no matter how much earthly power you acquire, no matter how big the empire is, no matter whether it's first century, 11th century, or today, if you are a king, a ruler, you are a delegated authority, which means Everything you do as a delegated authority, you will have to one day give an account to the one true authority. So when Christians down here look at stuff that's going on in the world, it doesn't mean everything's resolved, but we know no matter what happens, justice will be served. And every earthly king will give an account to the true king. What does it mean for, like, how we interact with each other. How do we deal with our differences? But the, the, the ripples go out even further because this was a cosmic battle. Jesus fought a war not just in an earthly sense, but with Satan's sin and death. All of creation was caught up into this. So think about um, the history of, say, World War I or World War II, or picture World War III if you're feeling lucky today. Um, <laughs> like, what happens at the end of a world war? The entire like geopolitical structure is changed. 
Like who wins a world war matters for the world. It shakes up and changes everything. There's implications to all the nations. So however big World War I or II was, what occurred 2,000 years ago was not just a war among the nations, but it was a cosmic war that had effects at every level in the physical and spiritual world. And so if a world war can cause that amount of change at the, like, just a geopolitical level, imagine what the cross did 2,000 years ago. It reverberates and it has implications for every level of reality. Now, when we say gospel-centered, I want you to know that we mean what Christ has done. His life, his death, his resurrection, his defeat of the powers of Satan, sin, and death. And we don't want that to just to be a slogan. I hope, you, I hope you feel it like every Sunday in the songs, in the sermon. It's why we go to communion because like no matter how much we, no matter how much we mess up, like you end with communion and you hear the gospel. Christ died for you. He rose. He's coming again. And that's actually what's most important. And so the gospel has to be centered. Now, I started off by saying, I want to show you how it affects like every layer of reality. But what I want to do is show you just something practical of how the gospel is applied to our everyday lives, even in our most smallest of struggles. Now, we've done this exercise before, so many of you remember it, but it's super important. We need to revisit it again and again. I want to talk about how the gospel, how you need to preach the gospel to yourself and apply the gospel to yourself in an everyday situation or everyday struggle. And you can pick something different in your head, but I'm going to work through lying. I felt that's safe because none of us here ever lie. Um, truth be told, if you try to be a truth teller all of the time, you'll see how difficult that becomes. It's very difficult to tell the truth. Um, even if you're, like, I don't do any massive lies, but you'll see how you exaggerate, you twist, you don't say something when you know you should. It's very difficult to, to be a person that stands in the truth all of the time. Very difficult. And so what this does uh, is it maps out on the left side types of lies that we say, say, and then on the right is some of the motivation behind those lies. So on the left, there's cruel lies, cowardly lies, conceited lies, calculated lies, and sometimes they're motivated by, motivated by different things like hate or fear or insecurity or selfishness. So I'm going to briefly walk through these and show you just how each one of these struggles or these sins or these places you find yourself in need to have the gospel preached to them and applied to them on a very practical day-to-day level. Okay, so let's say the cruel lie is motivated by hate. You ever not like somebody, like a lot? You know, maybe it turns into hate, and maybe they deserve it, right? They're, they're a bad person, and they've done a lot of horrible things. They've done horrible things to people you love, so maybe you say, I have every right to hate this person. And so, you know, before they come over on Christmas, because they're probably a part of the family, um, <laughs> You, you know, you're, you're already hoping that like maybe they get a flat tire or something like that. Um, and before they get there, you are intentionally slandering and saying negative things about this person. Now, everyone knows that like so-and-so is a headache and da-da-da, but you actually focus on their negativity and magnify it. You take delight in hating on them. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever done this? 
You ever not like somebody that you actually catch yourself just being, speaking negative things about them and then actually delighting. And then when someone joins in on it, like there's this energy, this evil energy of you, both of you back and forth talking about how horrible this person is. You know what I mean? So how do you apply the gospel to that? You can at that moment say, well, the gospel is that I get to go to heaven when I die. Like that again is true and part of the gospel announcement, but that's not it. Unless that person is so bad that you're just telling yourself, no matter how bad it gets, you'll still go to heaven when you die. Um, but the, the, the truth of it is, is something like this. What does the gospel say? That Christ died for me while I was his, while I was his enemy. I hated God. I didn't want anything to do with him. From heaven, he sought me. It wasn't when I had it all together, when I was a great person, when I had my act together that Christ died for me. It was at my worst, on my worst day, while I was an enemy of Christ and I hated him, he died for me. That's what the scriptures say. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So if Christ can die for me, who did not deserve him, who hated him, who had no right to love him, and he sought me, and he not only sought me, he died for a wretch like me and gave me grace when I did not deserve it, then help me, Lord, to forgive this person. Help me with my hate. Help me with my bitterness. Lord, you've given me so much grace and mercy. Help me be a person that's able to extend that to others. What about the cowardly lie that's rooted in fear? So let's say you're, um, you're at work and um, your boss says, hey, did you make sure to call so-and-so and tell him I'm going to be 20 minutes late for the meeting? You immediately go, yes, of course. I got to go to the bathroom though, hold on. And you go to the bathroom, get in the stall, shut the door, pull out your phone. Hey, boss is going to be 20 minutes late. And you come out and you act like you were on top of things. Have you ever tried to act as if you're doing better than you actually are? Have you ever done that? And it's, it's this, there's this fear that maybe, oh, my job's in trouble. So-and-so's going to think I'm not competent. They're going to think I'm not cool. They're going to think I'm not good enough. It's rooted in fear. But what do you tell yourself? You say, look, it's not as if these fears aren't real, but you have to remind yourself that your three greatest enemies, the three, your three biggest issues in life, the enemies that were coming for your soul, Satan, sin, and death, Christ has defeated them on your behalf. Therefore, whatever problems I may encounter, real as they may be, I will approach them with boldness and courage because someone's already taken the big stuff out. Do you feel that difference? The conceited lie rooted in insecurity. We'll call this the one-upper lie. The people who always have to one-up your story. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. You know, no matter how good you do, there's someone who goes, oh, and they're better. It starts very early. Like, you could see this with like second graders, third graders, fourth graders. Fourth graders take a test, so-and-so so happy. I got a, I got a hundred percent. I've never got a hundred percent. Then there's somebody in that fourth grade classroom. Oh, that's so good you got a hundred percent. Clearly, that means you didn't get the two bonus questions right for the 107%, you know? And then you grow up with that mentality, and you're always having to one-up everybody, you know? 
and go fishing. I went fishing this week and caught a nice trout. Oh, that's nice. That's, about the, that's what I use for bait for my fish. That's a bait fish. That's a, we call those guppies where I'm from. You know? And there's always this need to present. What's that? It's rooted in insecurity. Like when people do that, I see it a mile away. It's like, you're so inse- it's like you're so insecure. And it's like, what do you do? You have to preach the gospel to yourself. What do you tell yourself? It's like, do you know how valuable you are? If that man who died on that cross 2,000 years ago is really king of kings and lord of lords, he died to bring you into his fold. Do, do you know your value and your worth? The king of heaven and earth died for you? And you're trying to one-up a fishing story? You say, I am made in the image of God. The king of heaven left the throne to come down and die a slave's death to save a wretch like me? I don't need a one-up. You know, you start telling the truth. You know, I didn't even get 100%. It was a 67%. So even the perfect version of me was still defeated. Doesn't matter. Do you know your worth? Or last, the kind of calculated lie. It's rooted in selfishness. Maybe you're in the workplace, and it's not that you hate your coworkers, but you know someone's going to get a raise and put in a different position. And you need to make yourself look good to get the new position because you'll get a raise and make sure that the other people don't look as good. It's not that you hate them. You kind of like them, but you slowly kind of manipulate conversations. You make yourself look good. When so-and-so's not around, you point at their mistakes. You highlight their errors. And so you could kind of manipulate the game so you present better. And it's rooted in selfishness. It's not hate or anything. You just, you just really want more. You want that position. Well, you tell yourself of the gospel truth that there is only one being who actually has a technical right to be selfish in that there is one being in all of reality who is worthy of all praise, glory, and honor, and that is God. And even though he is worthy of all praise, glory, and honor, nevertheless, he comes down, becomes one of us, dies on that cross in order to bring us in. So if that man gave us that model of selflessness, then what am I to do with my selfishness? Man, this is ridiculous. How dare I be a selfish person? Christ selflessly gave himself for me. So you begin to learn to apply the gospel to every part of your life, every area. And that little exercise, you can pick something else. You can pick something else, a sin, a struggle, a worry, some anxiety, an, an, an idol in your life, and you preach the gospel to yourself through that. And Christians have to learn to preach the gospel to themselves and to each other every day. And you have to see the world through that lens because it affects the smallest things like your lies at work all the way up to the cosmos and to nations and rulers. Now out of this then flows mission. And so there's tons of verses in scripture that we can talk about the mission of the church. But I just wanna do one. It'll, it'll be brief, it's just gonna be one. There's tons, but this one highlights the mission of the church and your mission as a believer well and it, it puts, man, it puts the weight on your shoulders. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I've underlined the key parts because it's really easy to miss. This is heavy. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us. This is what the gospel has done. It's reconciled us. Christ died for us to defeat Satan, sin, and death. He's reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled in order that we might reconcile. But then it gets It gets heavier. Go down to to the next underlined part. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through you. Do you feel this? You've been given the ministry of reconciliation and God has entrusted you, me, all of us. If you are a believer, God has entrusted you with the message. Now you are an ambassador for Christ God is making his appeal to the world through us. That's heavy. Do you feel that? Do you feel the weight, the responsibility? Picture it like this. Let's say there's a couple who's in love. They're engaged. Everything is perfect. The, the groom-to-be has this super plan. He's gonna surprise his wife with some big elaborate thing. Her mind's gonna be blown, but he has to keep all of these secrets going together so that the big surprise happens and she realizes how much he truly loves her. Somewhere along the way, he gets caught in secrecy doing something and there's a massive miscommunication and the bride-to-be completely misinterprets it and she's like, we're done. I can't believe this. You've lied to me. You've kept things secret. We're done. I'm never talking to you again. And she actually goes through with it. It's not one of those like, we're done. We're, and then like 24 hours later, I miss you type of thing. You know, it's for real. She deletes him from all, she's erased from the phone, from social media. She will not talk to him. So what is the, the man to do? He goes to his friend. He says, you're my, you're my boy, Bubba. I have to trust you with something super important. My bride-to-be will not talk to me. She's misunderstood. I need you to go speak to her on my behalf and explain what's happened. So speak on my behalf and help her understand what actually was occurring. Now, what is... What does that man do? In that situation, that man is entrusting his marriage to Bubba. (laughs) He's entrusting it to him. The future marriage, the future potential of kids, family, grandchildren, all of that is resting on Bubba's ability to communicate what actually happened. Now, take all this back with us. If you are a believer, Christ has reconciled you to him but now he's given you the ministry of reconciliation and he's entrusted you with that message and now you are ambassador of Christ and God making his appeal through us, through you and I, his bride, his people, his church, his body. This is why I say when, when we see more new faces, 
we celebrate growth here at this church, but honestly, there's a way, like, there's people that need to hear the gospel. There's new believers. There's people need to grow in discipleship. Like, this is a weighty thing, and it should feel weighty. And so one of the ways that we do missions here is we say we do it locally and globally. Now, just briefly, locally, what I mean by that is just, that's you all, your friends, your family, your coworkers, the person you meet at the grocery store. You are a minister of reconciliation in all of those areas. But also, we partner with like existing on-the-ground ministries locally. So like with Foster the City or Crisis Pregnancy Centers or, or Pregnancy Centers. And, and that's because when you're in a, like say you're in a crisis, it's very hard to believe that there's a God in heaven who loves you when it appears that everyone down here is against you and there's nothing but suffering. So let's say with like a, a, a life pregnancy center, there's a young woman, a teenage woman who gets pregnant. The boyfriend wants her to abort the baby. The parents want her to do that. Everyone in her life, her friends say do this, but she's committed to keeping this baby. But she's terrified and she knows she's going to lose all support. So she shows up at a a pregnancy center that we would support, like Informed Choices, and terrified. But what does she get met with? Honey, we're going to get you through this. We love you. We're going to help you. And more importantly than that, even if the whole world betrays you, you have a Father in heaven who loves you, who will not leave you nor forsake you. We're going to get through this. It's going to be difficult, but we are going to get through this. It's similar to what happens in global missions, where let's say we're, we're working with an existing ministry overseas, and there is an area where there's not enough resources, there's not enough food. People are malnourished. It's very difficult to believe the gospel that God in, love, God in heaven loves you when you're hungry. And I don't mean hungry like when we as Americans use the word hungry, like I haven't ate since lunch. When you're malnourished, it's very difficult to focus on a gospel presentation when you haven't ate in several days. And so you bring in resources and love and you be the hands and feet, the church, the body of Christ. And you say, we're doing all of these things locally in our community and globally around the world, not to be like, oh, look at, look at the good things we do. We do them precisely because of the gospel. Christ sought us when we did not seek him. He showed us mercy when we did not deserve it. He gave us grace when we had not earned it. And out of that love and reconciliation that happens to us, then we look out into the world and want the world to come to know the same Jesus that we have come to know. And so mission flows from the gospel. And so everything we do, everything, everything, we want it to be rooted in the gospel. We want to see the gospel the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's the spotlight. His defeat over Satan, sin, and death. And we want to talk about the implications, the ripples of that every single day, every single Sunday. Now, what I'd like to do as we close is something that I've done uh, a few times before. I I don't know where I got the beginning point of this. I I think from uh, some book that had a list of Bible verses strung together. And then I think I've added and subtracted to them over the years. But it's just a list of scriptures that if you are in Christ, what I'm about to say is true of you. And the reason why I want to read it is because you can see how the promises of God, the gospel, applies to all of us, every single person, no matter what stage of life, no matter what we're struggling with, good times, bad times. Whether your biggest anxiety in life is, what college am I going to go to? Or your biggest anxiety in life is, 
Honestly, I know I am at the end of my life. I know, you know, you start having those conversations. You get, it's like, this may be my last decade. This, I might only have a few Christmases left. Or you might be saying that about in, in a different situation for some other reason. But no matter where you're at, like whatever anxiety there is, whatever stress, there, whatever you're going through, I want to read and speak God's truth over you. This is God's word spoken over you. It is true of you if you are in Christ today. For we know we can cast all all our anxieties on him, whatever it may be, the big, the small, whatever. We know that we can cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. We know if we dwell in the shelter of the Most High, we will abide in the shadow of the Most High. We will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, Psalm 91, 1 through 2. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And we know in times of desperation, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And we know that in this world, we will have trouble, but in him we can have peace because he has overcome the world. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is true of you today. A man, Jesus of Nazareth, fought a battle on your behalf. He went to war with your greatest enemies. And in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he has defeated all three. He is victorious. You have been reconciled. And now you walk with euangelion good news. You have been given and entrusted the message of reconciliation. What a great joy and privilege we have to share this news. Let's stand as we take communion.